to 12 is a chapter of the Bible full of practical help for us. And that's what we're going to explore in the coming weeks. Romans 12 and maybe 13 and 14 and explore lots of different themes about what we should be doing now as Christians. We're going to focus today on verses 1 and 2. So I'd love you to turn there and perhaps have that open as I read that. Let's hear God's word to us and then we'll think together about how this helps us to live. So Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. These two verses form the pivot point in this book of Romans. They set up all of the practical things that Paul is going to teach us. We're going to learn about hospitality and serving one another and praying and how you deal with people that are difficult, all sorts of practical things, how you relate to governments. But all of them rest on what he says in these two verses. So we need to take a good look at these and have a good think about what they're teaching. Now let's just have a look at how the verses work to start with. Just see the the structure of these two verses. There are two commands in these verses. In, In verse one, there is the command to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's command one. And then in verse two, you get command number two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So offer your bodies and be transformed. They're the two commands. But those two commands rest upon a foundation. They are rooted in a fundamental reality. And that is, at the start of verse 1, in view of God's mercy. You see, it is the mercy of God which is the foundation for obedience to these commands. It is extremely important for us as Christians that we must not hear God's commands without first hearing God's motivation. Obedience that does not flow out of an experience of God's mercy is not Christian obedience. It may be religious, but it's not Christian. No, it is the mercy of God which is the engine and the motivation behind all Christian obedience. Therefore, the mercy of God is fundamental to everything. And if the mercy of God becomes mundane to us, then obedience will become a chore. So you ask what we should be getting on with in these days? Well, here's the first thing we should be getting on with, treasuring the mercy of God. The more we can see of the majesty of God's mercy, the more we will be motivated to obey him with the whole of our lives. So Romans chapter 12 starts with this word, therefore. And don't be fooled by that word. Hidden under that word is all that Paul has said in chapters 1 to 11. 
Paul has carefully and painstakingly explained to us the mercy of God and he says, therefore, now live these commands. So let's take a moment to enjoy God's mercy. I'm going to go very fast and I'm going to pick out some highlights from Romans chapters 1 to 11 of the mercy of God. And I want to encourage you to enjoy this. As I speak and as I show you what God's word says, why not be worshipping in your heart? Turn these things into praise. You can do it out loud if you want, but at least in your heart be saying, yes, yes. Now look, it may be that you're watching this and you're not a Christian. It's great that you've joined this afternoon. And let me encourage you to listen hard. This is the mercy of God. This is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. And hey, who knows, even this afternoon, you might have a life-changing encounter with the mercy of God. So you ready? You want to know about mercy? Well, let me give you a little taste. But it will only be a little taste because the mercy of God is unsearchably deep and unfathomably rich. You see, God is mercy. He does not just possess mercy. He is not just merciful sometimes. He is mercy. He is always merciful. It flows from the very essence of who God is. It flows from his very heart. God doesn't need a counsellor or an advisor to tell him to be merciful. Hey, why don't you try this? He is mercy. Even in the face of intense provocation, God is merciful. And God looks at this world that he has made and he looks at the people who bear his image. And do you know what he sees? He sees godlessness and wickedness. He sees people who suppress the truth about God by their wickedness. He sees people who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. He sees people who have chosen to worship created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And as God looks at this world that has rejected him, he is rightly and deeply angry. Our world hangs under the wrath of God. It is a desperate and dangerous situation. But remember, he's the God of mercy. And so God sees this world with eyes of mercy. He sees more. And he sees the desperate need. Yes, we are guilty, but we're also powerless. We can't keep God's law. We can't save ourselves. We can't achieve the standard. We cannot escape God's wrath. And so the mercy of God looked at us in our powerless state and he has acted on our behalf. It is God's mercy that drove him to send his son into the world. It is the mercy of God that offered Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross. It is the mercy of God that freely offers forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith. It is the mercy of God by which guilty people are freely justified. It is the mercy of God that means we are fully and completely forgiven, that it has all been done, that Jesus was punished in our place, that we might go free. It is the mercy of God. That's the mercy that Paul says we are to have in view. That is the foundation, but we're not finished yet. In fact, we're just getting started on the mercy of God. 
It is the mercy of God that means we now have access into this grace in which we now stand. It is, the act, it is the mercy of God that loved us while we were still sinners. It is the mercy of God that saw us in our powerless and feeble position and made the choice to save us. It is the mercy of God that guarantees our future. It is the mercy of God that means that through Christ, righteousness overflows to many. It is the mercy of God that means Christ stands as our representative. He fights for us. It's the mercy of God that means now grace reigns through righteousness. It is the mercy of God that means we have been set free from slavery to sin and can now offer ourselves to him. It is the mercy of God that means we are not paid the wages that our sin deserves, that is death, but instead we are given eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the mercy of God that comes to us in our struggle and our battle. It is the mercy of God that means when we cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is an answer that says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the mercy of God that means there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the mercy of God that means the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in Christ. It's the mercy of God that means we are now adopted as God's sons and daughters and by his spirit we now cry out Abba Father. It's the mercy of God that as we groan in prayer the spirit groans with us. It is the mercy of God that means one day we will be set free from bondage to decay. It's the mercy of God that means we are more than conquerors in Christ. It's the mercy of God that chose us, that loved us, that preached to us, that found us. It's the mercy of God that grafted us into his people and it's the mercy of God that guarantees not one of God's people will be lost. Oh, how great and unsearchable are the riches of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. Do you feel it? Do you feel the weight the majesty, the breadth, we've only scratched the surface. Oh, the mercy of God. When God's mercy becomes mundane, obedience becomes a chore. But when God's mercy sparkles in its infinite majesty, obedience becomes a joy. Here is the foundation upon which we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Here is the motivation that transforms us. We don't obey God out of fear, because otherwise he might punish us. We don't obey God out of guilt, trying to pay him back for all he's done to us, trying to make up for our sins. We obey him because of his mercy. Christians are compelled by an overwhelming sense of the mercy of God. It is God's mercy who has made us who we are. You know, there's such security here. Your status as one of God's children does not rest on your performance, but on his mercy. You obey God not to earn his mercy, but because of his mercy. So have you got the mercy of God clear in your heart? Or has it become mundane to you? 
Isn't it true that often as we go through life, the mercy of God loses its sparkle? It becomes commonplace. We sometimes sing a song that says, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of your mercy. It's a great, kind of, it's, it's a great aspiration, but it's pretty unreasonable. I lose the wonder of God's mercy. Where's it gone? What have I done with it? Where, where, I've lost the wonder. I've lost the wonder. Well, don't panic. If you've lost the wonder of God's mercy, if it's become mundane, don't panic. But re-engage your heart. Ask that God would show you again his mercy. I, I beg of you, please don't settle for a mundane view of God's mercy. Don't settle there. Pursue wonder. Here's what we should be getting on with. The first thing we should be getting on with, treasuring God's mercy. And as we see how much he's loved us and how much he's given us, then these two great commands flow out from there. The first, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The second, be transformed. So let's think together about this idea of being a living sacrifice. As soon as you hear the language of sacrifice, you should immediately be thinking of temple and priests and altars and offerings. That is, you should be thinking of worship. We're in the realm of worship when we talk about this language of sacrifice. The mercy of God leads us to worship him. But when I talk about worship, I mean worship in the biggest possible sense of that word. Not a narrow little worship, but a maximum worship. So let's think back to temple. What was temple worship like in the days before Jesus? Well, sacrifice played a key part. I've been reading through Leviticus um, this week in my morning Bible readings. I try to read the Bible every day, and this week it was in Leviticus. And sacrifices everywhere. There are burnt offerings and grain offerings and fellowship offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings. They go on and on because sacrifice, this idea of offering, is fundamental to temple worship. Now, some of those sacrifices were to deal with sin. The guilt offering was to make atonement for the wrong that the people had done. But some of the sacrifices were to express devotion and dependence to God, a thankfulness to God for all that he had given. But in every case, the sacrifices were costly and they were burned on the altar. And you get this repeated idea in Leviticus that the aroma, the smell of the offerings on the altar was pleasing to God. The picture is that as the people worship with their sacrifices, God in heaven smells the aroma and he is pleased. But you offer, you offer the best. You don't give God the leftovers. You don't bring a scrawny lamb with a dodgy front leg. No, you brought the best. The people are repeatedly told, you must bring a lamb without defect. You must bring an offering that is from the first fruits. It's got to be the best. It's funny, isn't it, how human nature never really changes. 
we all have this sort of attitude that sometimes wants to work out, well, what can I get away with? What's the, what's the least I can bring? But that's to treat worship like a box of celebrations. You know, the chocolates. You know, that's like taking out all of the Maltesers teasers out of the box before you then offer them to your guests. I mean, we've never done that, <laughs> honestly. But God is not some unwanted guest that you have to grudgingly share your chocolate with. He's the God of all glory who calls people to worship him. You bring the Maltesers teasers to him as the first fruits, as the best. And the temple worship was to teach the people, you worship God with sacrifice. But the sacrifices of the temple, were, they were never the final plan. They were a pattern of worship. They were to teach the people about worship, but they were never the full reality of worship. They were always pointing forwards to something more. Now, the reality of worship is not seen until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, some of the sacrifices dealt with sin and made atonement. Jesus offers that sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus offers the best. He offers everything. The spotless Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, goes to a cross to die in our place. He offers the sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices for sin. There is no more atonement left to be made. But there is still a sacrifice of worship to be offered. Not the sin offering, but now the offering of devotion and dependence. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about the living sacrifice that we now offer. So we offer the whole of our lives as a sacrifice to God. We are to offer, verse 1 says, our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is a pretty complete and total idea. Not a part of something, but everything. It helps us to see that this worship, this offering that Paul is talking about, is not some airy, fairy, spiritual thing. It's real. It's flesh. We place ourselves on the altar as an offering before God. We no longer bring an offering. Instead, we are the offering. This vision of worship is so deeply challenging. And it's massive, isn't it? We aren't talking about a bit of singing on Sundays. There we go, that's worship done. We're talking about everything. You don't give God leftovers. You don't give God what's left over after your busy week. You don't take out all the Maltesers and give God the Milky Ways and the Mars bars. You give him everything, the whole box. You say, it's all yours. So just think about our bodies for a second. That includes what we do with our hands, the work that we do with our hands. Your work, offer your work as a living sacrifice. If you're more busy at the moment, offer your busyness as a living sacrifice to God. If you're less busy, offer your extra time as an offering to God. 
One helpful way, I think, to think about this is to remember Isaiah, who one day had an experience, a worshipping experience in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, where he saw the glory of God and and he realised he was sinful and then atonement was made and his sin was taken away. And his response was to say, here am I, send me. That, that's the language of a living sacrifice. Here am I. So as you get up in the morning, you turn to God and you say, God, here am I today. Send me, use me. What will you do with me today? As you turn on your computer to do your work, here am I, Lord. As you think of your empty morning where you've got nothing to do, here am I, Lord. This morning is yours, not mine. What would you like me to do with it? We offer everything to him. Here am I. As you put the key in the door at the end of the day and you walk into your flat and you see your housemates, you walk in saying, here am I, Lord. Let me be a living sacrifice to you with these people. As you think about your bigger dreams and ambitions, we have so many plans, but where's that heart of Isaiah that says, here am I, Lord, send me. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to use my life? How do you want me to use my gifts? Here am I. Lord, here is my money. It's a living sacrifice. Here are my gifts. It's a living sacrifice. Here is my time. It's yours. It's all yours. Now you can hear that's scary, right? But as you do that, Paul says, it is holy and pleasing to God. So don't you ever think, well, why would God want me? What would God be bothered about me for? No, God says, I want you because you're holy. I want you because I love you. I want you because Jesus paid for your sin. You're holy to me. You're pleasing to me. And as we offer ourselves to him, it's like that aroma in the temple. It goes up to God and he smells it and he's pleased. He wants you. Now, why do we find it hard to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Let's face it, that's not easy, right? If any of you are sitting watching that going, fine, okay, I'll do that. Hopefully, most of us are saying, that's a massive thing. I think there are three, here's three reasons why I think it's hard to offer your body as a living sacrifice. First, because I think we by nature play, play it safe. We don't like to do things that are risky. And being a sacrifice is not safe. I mean, ask Fluffy the lamb. To be a sacrifice is costly. To be a sacrifice is going to hurt. To be a sacrifice is going to mean that you give stuff up. And that doesn't feel very safe. And so we're like a tightrope walker who says, fine, I'll walk the tightrope as long as I've got a safety harness. And we always want to have a safety harness. And God says, no, forget the safety harness. Entrust yourself to me. Be a living sacrifice. Offer everything to me. You say, I can't. Well, look at, look at God's mercy. In view of his mercy. So some of us need to take more risks as a living sacrifice. Secondly, I think we find it hard because by nature we have a volunteer mentality. That is that I'm sort of, being a Christian means I sort of volunteer for God's team. And when we serve God, we act as if we're doing him a favour. Isn't God lucky that I was willing to help out today? 
Now, the great thing about being a volunteer is that you maintain all the control. Someone phones you up and says, could you uh, help out this evening? You say, I can't do this evening. Could I do next Tuesday? You're a volunteer. You have all the control. And we can be like that with God. Yeah, fine, God, I don't mind volunteering a bit of time. What would you like? But a sacrifice is everything. And for some of us, we need to switch out of a volunteer mentality into a sacrifice. Lord, everything, it's all yours and it's all for you. And the third reason that I think we find it hard to be living sacrifices is because we keep looking at what we've given up. Look, can I say, it's always going to be hard to live a life of sacrifice if your focus is on what you've given up. All that you've lost. All that could have been yours if you hadn't made this choice. Now that just leads to self-pity. Now the mercy of God is so compelling that we become willing to give up anything for him. So look, rather than being obsessed with what it's costing us, why don't we seek to be obsessed with the one we're giving it up for? That's what happens when the mercy of God gets a hold of our hearts. We say, I'll give you anything. I'll do anything for you. And it's worship. That's very practical. That's what we should be getting on with today. Treasuring the mercy of God and offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And then the third thing, uh, and the second command, is to be transformed. So this is verse two, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the mercy of God will lead us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think one of the great pressures of being under lockdown, I don't know if you've noticed this, is that we're all supposed to be learning new skills. We're supposed to be exercising more and transforming our lives. We're supposed to be changing ourselves we like the idea of change but for most of us we're so busy we haven't got the time to do anything but what Paul has in mind is not the pressure to change ourselves but rather the willingness to be transformed by God you see when you encounter this extraordinary mercy of God it doesn't leave you the same you are profoundly changed by him So rather than being conformed to the pattern of this world, we are transformed by the word of God. Being conformed doesn't take any thought. It doesn't take any, it just happens to us. Words are spoken and we listen to them and we pick up the ideas and the values of this age and we're conformed to be more and more like the world that we live in. But God says we need to resist that and instead be transformed. And it's particularly, it is the transformation of our minds that we need. Now, this really is beautiful. Transformed by the renewing of your minds. You know, back in Romans chapter one, back at the start of this book, this is what Paul said. He said that humanity had become futile in its thinking and darkened in its understanding. Do you hear that? Futile in its thinking. 
And so we have minds that are dark and futile. But what God's mercy does is he transforms us and renews us. He brings life. He brings clarity. He brings color. Through the majestic mercy of God, we're made new. This makes me think, and I'm sorry if this is a silly illustration, but it always reminds me of the Lion King. In the film, the Lion King, Scar is ruling over the land. He's a bad king. And everything is dark and grey and there's bones and death everywhere. And it's miserable. But then Simba, the rightful king, comes back to Pride Rock. And there's a battle and Scar is defeated and Simba is installed as king. And when Simba is installed as king, suddenly all the land is renewed. Suddenly there's colour and there's light and there's beauty and there's water and there's life. Life under Scar was dark and futile. Life under Simba is renewed. That's what God is doing. He is transforming us, transforming our minds, transforming our thinking. By nature, our thinking is dark and futile, but God, by his mercy, transforms our thinking so that we might have life. And so the command is to be transformed. That is to allow God to transform us. That means to listen to what he says. It means that we delve into his word, that we seek to understand his word, that we seek to understand what he has to say to us, that we want to know more of this mercy, more of Jesus, more of all that God has done for us, more of what pleases him. Because as our mind is transformed, then, end of verse two, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So as your mind is transformed by God, suddenly you begin to know what is right. You begin to love what God loves. You begin to desire the things that God desires. You see, this is why Christianity is never going to be a list of rules that you have to obey. Here's a list of rules that you have to keep. That's man-made religion. I've got all these desires that are wrong, but there's some rules that try and keep me straight. But the the mercy of God is so much bigger and so much better than that because the mercy of God comes into our dark and futile minds and changes our desires. It changes our thinking so that we no longer need a list of rules to tell us what to do. Instead, we begin to understand the very heart of God and love and desire the things that he loves. So what should we be getting on with today? Get on with being transformed. Get on with asking that God would fill your mind with a knowledge of his will so that you can live in this way that pleases him. Be aware of the patterns that we are conforming ourselves to and ask that he would transform us. So that's where we're starting That's what we should be getting on with today. Treasure the mercy of God. Like delight in his mercy. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Whole, complete, costly, risky. Be transformed.
Allow God to renew your thinking so that you begin to love like he loves. Why don't we pray together and ask that God would help us to obey these commands. Father, thank you so much that before you give us commands, you give us some motivation. Thank you that our obedience flows from your mercy. And Lord, we pray that we would know that to be real in our lives. Father, we're so sorry when your mercy becomes mundane. Father, please might your mercy sparkle in its beauty in our eyes. And we pray that we would, in response to your mercy, offer our bodies as living sacrifices and that we would have our minds renewed as we listen to your words and as you change us. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Joe's going to lead us in a time of um, singing where we'll have a chance just to reflect and respond. Perhaps there are areas where God has challenged you this afternoon. Perhaps you long for a deeper understanding of mercy. Or perhaps you know there are areas where you're holding things back. Or perhaps you want to be transformed more and more. Let's use this time to respond to God and ask him to be at work in us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're going to sing together. We're going to ask that God would help us to keep that mercy in our view. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us. Our response is because you have acted so mercifully towards us. Help us to see in greater depth what it means that you washed away our sin, that you gave us riches we could never have earned or deserved. Let's sing what love could remember. His mercy is more. 
as new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Sins they are many, His mercy is more. 